When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Stedman, tell me what you're looking at right now. What do you see out the window? <laughs> uh, right now at the window, it's just it's a wall of trees. This is Stedman Hood. He's working remotely, in case that wasn't clear. Very remotely. So we're on the top of this mountain, and we're looking down into a valley, and on the other side, it's another mountain range. Stedman is renting a house in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a few hours south of San Francisco, where he lived until just a few months ago. So far, he's finding his new lifestyle pretty agreeable. So what is there to do? It's basically um, a lot of introspection, exercise, I think self-care generally. There's a little more time for that. Um, and just the pace of life is slower. Like it, it feels like there's more, there's more time out here for the important, not urgent things. What, what falls under that category for you that you're able to do now that you weren't doing before? One thing is learning Chinese. That's something that I've been meaning to do for forever. And, uh, and now I just, I, I feel, you know, I have no commute and I'm, I'm sort of like looking for things to fill the space of the, of the downtime. Ah, uh, the good life. It wasn't so long ago that Stedman was a worker bee in the big city. So in San Francisco, for the past five years, I was living in a, I guess a co-op is the best way to describe it. It was a house of 11 people. It was itself a really loving, kind of uh, wholesome community where I felt like I could go down into the living room or the kitchen and just be at a house party with some of my favorite people and I didn't even have to plan it. But this classic millennial living situation was about to reveal its shortcomings. Living in a co-op under the, with a pandemic, you need to be very aligned in terms of your safety preferences and kind of what level of precaution you want to have. It struck me that what Stedman had been through in his group house is what all city dwellers are dealing with. Suddenly, you need to trust the people around you. You need to count on your neighbors to wear masks. And you have to hope your friends and family haven't been out doing karaoke. At the same time, the thing Stedman liked most about the city... Now he doesn't miss much at all. The big thing to me about San Francisco, you know, has always been the people. All of my loved ones uh, in the city, I can still, I can still Zoom them. I actually, I have some friends in the city that I talk to more now than I did when we lived in the city together. Because when you're in the same city, you're like, oh, we got to meet up. But when you're not, you, you know, that's not going to happen. So you can just have a call. At first, I thought Stedman was an extreme outlier. He didn't just flee the city for the country. He moved his whole startup team there and their partners, too. They all live and work in this one big house where they have whiteboards in the basement and weekly conflict resolution meetings. 
most people can't just pack up like they did, nor can they work remotely. And not everybody wants to do dishes with their boss. But in some other ways, according to research by Pew, Stedman is representative of the people who have left the city since the start of the pandemic. He's a young adult, the most likely group to have moved. He left explicitly to escape the coronavirus, the number one reason people have moved. And he left a city known for its soaring rents and culture of remote work. Since the coronavirus shutdowns began in March, everyone's been wondering the same thing. Are city residents really leaving? And if so, are they ever coming back? Big cities have been awfully quiet. And there's evidence that urbanites aren't just lying low. They're lying on a beach in South Florida. Miami was the number one destination for the 80,000 mail forwarding requests the U.S. Postal Service received for New York City in April. That's four times the usual number. Eager journalists have rushed to quote suburban real estate brokers, which is like asking Oscar Mayer if people like hot dogs. Local TV is following families out to greener pastures, and Instagram shows a never-ending stream of vacations. Still, it has been hard to tell how many people have really left. I'm Henry Grabar, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. This is the second episode in our six-part series on the future of the city during and after COVID-19. Today on the show, who's really moving and where and for how long? We'll talk to three reporters who write about cities and suburbs on what might be next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So should we do some intros? Um, maybe Emily, you go first and then Natalie and then Amanda. I wanted straight talk on whether cities were emptying into their suburbs. So I called three of the best reporters I know. My name is Emily Badger. I'm a reporter with The New York Times. If you read about cities, you read Emily Badger. I'm Natalie Moore, a reporter at Chicago Public Radio, WBEZ. Natalie's book, The South Side is one of the best new books I've read about cities and race. I'm Amanda Colson-Hurley. I'm an editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, and I live outside of Washington, D.C. It's hard to think of a writer and editor who's done more to revise our simplistic, outdated understanding of American suburbs than Amanda. I was psyched to get these three people into a virtual room. Forget those suburban real estate brokers. This group knows their stuff. Maybe the place to start is to ask... What would be the data or or the anecdotes that you guys are looking at or would look for to tell if there really is an exodus going on from cities? Natalie, maybe we should start with you. I think if we're trying to capture the moment now, I would start looking at vacancy rates for apartments, checking in with 
apartment buildings with real estate agents to see if people are pulling out of deals. And and this is for rentals and for home sales or or condo sales. I I think that that would be the the first starting point to see if there's any pandemic panic. Right. (laughs) It's, It's sort of frustrating to ask people to be patient when everyone wants to talk about how the world is fundamentally changing right now. Uh, but I think that we'll, it, it's going to take a while for us to really sort of sort out whether or not something is happening right now that's fundamentally different from what would have been happening right now otherwise. Right. I wonder how much of that early buzz was driven by what seemed to be visual evidence that people were gone because businesses were closed and mail was piling up and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we definitely know that people have left. Uh, We can see it in cell phone data. We can see it in like garbage collection data. I mean, it's clear that people have temporarily left, but I don't think that we can necessarily translate that to that means that those people are never going to come back again. Here's a point that suggests they will. This week, Devira Cohen at Pew published a survey of almost 10,000 U.S. adults taken in early June. She found just 3% said they moved. And among that group, 60% moved in with family. Cohn quoted Robert Frost, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Which suggests that these moves, the ones that happened during the worst of the pandemic, aren't permanent, or at least they weren't supposed to be. I asked if anyone had seen signs of cities being flexible, adapting, working for the people who live there. Reviews were mixed. When people are facing eviction, when they are losing their jobs, and you have all these very other immediate things, and then there are folks who want to talk about urban planning. I look on social media about people complaining really, really strongly about the lakefront not being open because they want to take walks. And, you know, the transportation folks are like, here's our moment to close down streets and become a carless society. And... I don't think that's the message that Black neighborhoods in particular want to hear right now. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot over the last couple of months about the benefits of cities, the benefits of density. And to some people, that's a conversation about the benefits of having lots of diverse kinds of restaurants uh, or of having amenities and cultural institutions. But then there's this whole other category of benefits, which are things like really big hospital systems, uh, a lot of beds in ICUs, uh, hospitals that have ventilators. There's this kind of infrastructural social service side of things that we have in cities that a lot of less dense communities don't have. Uh, That includes a lot of um, social services that are designed to support the poor that, um, you know, creating a safety net that is a lot more frayed in other kinds of communities. But those conversations, to come back to Natalie's point, I think are a little bit different from the conversations about whether or not we're giving people access to restaurants on the street right now. Amanda, there's a lot of suburbs that have some city-like features, including yours. Do you think it makes sense to draw this hard line between cities and suburbs when we talk about the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think the distinction is limited in its utility. I think in the early days of the pandemic, there were a, a number of articles speculating about uh 
is COVID a sort of urban disease? Is this an urban phenomenon? Is it because of density? Is it because of the subway? And from the beginning, that struck me as as just the kind of the, the wrong question to ask. People in suburbs, whatever level of density and, you know, whatever that suburb looks like, people are going to houses of worship. Uh, kids are going to school. People are going to the gym. They're going to Walmart or whatever. They're going to the grocery store. And actually, the more that we've learned about how the virus uh, spreads and kind of what the riskiest situations are for uh, becoming infected, I think the more that kind of city-suburb distinction really breaks down. It turned out you can't escape COVID-19 in the suburbs, but at least you could get a backyard for your kids, right? It takes a lot to move. It takes money, it takes time, resources. So I have a hard time thinking someone's going to move just because of the pandemic whether we're in it right now or if they're looking six months from now. But with childcare, you know, everybody is suffering with that, no matter where you live. And I don't know if you get a house in a suburb where you're going to pay higher taxes. So you can have a backyard for your kid because she might not be in school five days a week, if that's worth it. It may not be worth it just for that. But here in Chicago, people have been moving to the suburbs for decades, especially Black Chicagoans. 50,000 people have left since 2015. Despite all the talk about the resurgence of cities before the pandemic, suburbanization has never really gone away. In most cities, it's as much a part of the big city life cycle as ever. If the families moving out now are the same ones who would have moved out next year or the year after that, then what's happening right now might not be so significant. But what is new is what we talked about last week, remote work. If that becomes very widespread, that would be enough of a push factor, I think, to actually accelerate suburbanization. If you have families where you used to have, you know, two people commuting to jobs, two, two adults commuting to jobs and one or more children commuting to school, and now everybody's at home and this becomes a long-term or medium-term situation, I think that the spatial strain at that point would be enough to push people to say, finally, okay, we just need more space. Well, I can tell you really quickly that the, the commuter rail line here is concerned because the suburbanites, many of them come to the central business district, but they're not living in the city. So will that transit line or system be able to sustain itself if you have all of these workers staying home? So I do think that the short-term thing to look at is office buildings and space. I think we can see some clear things there right now about how they're being retrofitted, um, how people aren't coming back. Buildings that are vacant or have vacancies probably won't be able to be filled. And what does that mean for the commuter? And I think this is a good example of also reminding ourselves how tight. It's not always just city versus suburb. How are we connected to a region? Right. I guess another question is how fragile are the amenities that keep people in the city, that make cities exciting? I'm thinking about fast, frequent transit in the sort of public bucket, and then also 
all the sort of private culture of a city, which is to say it's little live music venues and restaurants and comedy clubs. And it seems like even under the best case scenario, uh, some of these places are going to be in, in real trouble. And I'm wondering how durable you think that infrastructure is. Yeah, so I think, one, it's really hard to predict, like, what is that landscape going to look like? And then the the other question that you're asking, Henry, is how are people going to respond to that landscape if it really changes? I think it depends on who you ask. So I think there are clearly some kind of young professional 20-somethings who have a lot of disposable income for whom the appeal of city life is that they would have those places to spend their disposable income. But then I also think there are a lot of people who wouldn't want to move away from the city because the infrastructure that they rely on is that they have extended family who live nearby or they have social networks that they're embedded in. And those kinds of things are going to still be here regardless of what happens to the economy. It seems like one thing we're we're coming around to is that this is all, it's a kind of a luxury to, to, to be able to uproot your life and, and even remote work, which is what enables um, a lot of this conversation about suburbanization to even um, happen is uh, something of a luxury. If it is only the richest urbanites who decide that they're going to a farmhouse in the mountains for the fall so that they can send their kids um, to school every day and uh, go for walks and whatnot, why should we care? Does that matter for cities? If, if in fact, there is some exodus of wealthy people, it definitely matters for cities if their tax base is going to further shrink on top of you know, the fact that sales taxes have completely disappeared. Cities are going to be in this terrible moment going forward with their budgets, regardless of what happens with these demographic changes, at the very same moment when there's going to be enormous need for spending on a lot of programs by cities. So simply from the point of view that we would like to spend some of rich people's money on things that benefit everyone, uh, I think we should care whether or not those people leave. That issue of municipal budgets is about to be pretty pressing. In, in, in the sort of longer term, if city schools lose their guidance counselors, if the bus only comes once every 20 minutes, does that weigh on these places appealed? The idea that you can sort of relocate your way out of, away from the problem is, is false. I mean, I, I think that all types of urbanized areas have hard times ahead. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any uh, retreat to some kind of idyllic place that's not going to be affected by, by this economic crisis. Amanda's right. Since the four of us talked a couple weeks ago, the extent to which we're not going back to normal has only gotten more clear. It's not looking good for schools in cities or suburbs. And anecdotally, I keep hearing about more people leaving. But here's the thing about the American city. Tens of thousands of people leave every year. In a place like New York, that's hundreds of thousands. And that's in the best of times. But normally, they get replaced by two groups. First, by Americans going to new jobs and enrolling in new schools. Until offices and classrooms come back, that inflow of residents won't come back either. The second, and the most important, is immigrants. Without new immigrants, most big U.S. cities wouldn't have grown in decades. Right now, with Trump in office and a pandemic raging, that historic generator of American city neighborhoods has been shut off overnight. People are always leaving cities. So what's different this year? 
Nobody's arriving to replace them. And that's the show. Thanks to Emily Badger at The New York Times, Natalie Moore with Chicago Public Radio WBEZ, and Amanda Colson-Hurley from Bloomberg Businessweek. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks. Derek John and Allison Benedict helped with editorial direction for this series. Thank you, Allison and Derek. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Henry Grabar. Thanks for listening. Mary will be back in your feed on Monday. And a big TBD congrats to Lizzie O'Leary, who had a baby last week. See, someone moved into New York. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.